Our scripture reading today is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Wayne. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good morning. We okay? Okay, there we go. That's great. A little bit of my insecurities are nice when you say, hey, it's good to see you and it's good to be back. So I'm really glad, glad to have you guys back uh, here. I am, I am Ryan Anderson, as uh, Wayne had mentioned, and it is a real privilege to be with you all this morning. Uh, a little bit about me, as he mentioned, I'm from Franklin. I have family uh, here as well. My children, I think they were dismissed. They are twins that are five, and the baby is, well, she's not a baby much anymore, but she's two, and, uh, and we would just love to get to know you. So if you're visiting here your first time, this is my first visit as well, so we're in the same boat. And that two-year-old, uh, she's looking for a good home. And so if you guys know anybody that might, you know, need a good two-year-old in, that, in your house, you just come and let me know. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I would, I would never do that to you all. Um, <laughs> I want to turn your eyes to the text here uh, in Hebrews chapter 4. As you may know, your, your church in town uh, and over as well at Central, that your pastors are taking you through a, a series called Love Supreme. And it's a series that's looking at and considering some of the anchor teachings of what's known as the Protestant Reformation. You see, in fact, 16 days from now, uh, it marks the 500-year anniversary to the day, believe it or not, that a monk, a monk named Martin Luther, hammered these 95 sentences or theses to the church castle door at Wittenberg in Germany. And that sort of spark, that hammer-pounding heard around the world, sparked what is known as the Reformation. And so here we are in the middle of it. Now, I know last week you are in the middle of a series on Solus Christus, which is just Latin for uh, by Christ alone. Now last week, Pastor Stacy looked at the idea of Christ being your prophet. And today we're going to consider the idea of Christ being a high priest, a Christ as priest. And so if you would, if you would take a moment and pray with me, we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness to your people. Lord, thank you for the ways that you meet us in our weakness. And I pray today that you would show all of us, O oh Lord, um, how you do, in fact, do just that. Lord, meet us because we come in here uh, broken. Many of us not um, thankful or not proud of the week that we've had. Many of us, Lord, come in here despairing. Others of us come in here quite hopeful. And others, Lord, come in here wondering if um, it's worth uh, giving God, giving Christianity, giving the church one more shot. And so we come in here with great doubts as well. So wherever we're at, O oh Lord, we pray that you would meet us in our need and show us Jesus this morning. Show us how beautiful he is. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the things that's funny, our oldest uh, kids are twins. 
And uh, there are five now. And I can remember at one point in particular, one of them, uh, Evangeline and Audrey, that's the twins' names. I was, I was having to discipline a little bit, Audrey. I can't remember what it was at this point. But twins have this weird thing. I don't, it's just the weird twin thing. I don't know what twins do, but it's just weird sometimes. And I can remember one moment where I was in this moment having to talk to Audrey. Evangeline came up and got in between uh, both of us and said, no, daddy, you can't. And in that moment, she was defending her sister from her dad in some ways. Now, I wasn't going to do anything heavy-handed, of course, but I was shocked that, my, that her sister had jumped to her aid to sort of go as an in-between. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that what Evangeline did for her sister really flies right in the main vein of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at for us today. It really deals with the idea of a go-between, or to use some theological language, the idea of a mediator. A mediator, somebody who stands between two parties to sort, to sort things out, to make things better, to reconcile things. And what I want you to see today is that Jesus as your high priest, stands in the gap as it were for you. And in doing so, he really does do something amazing. We're going to look at that. I'm not going to give it away just yet. We're going to look at it. But here's the thing I'm hoping for today. I'm hoping that when you leave those doors or these doors, that you would get a sense of how wild and crazy Jesus is for you. That you would leave these doors seeing what lengths he has gone to and how it delights him so to give himself to you. That's my great hope this morning. So if I achieve that in some way, I'll let you decide. But let's take a look at the text here. Hebrews chapter four. You saw it there and I'd like to maybe start with this heading. That first of all, we see that we have from the writer of Hebrews, that we have a great need for a high priest. Look with me there at these back half of these verses, 15 and 16. You begin to see it there, the idea of a need for a high priest. Now, the first thing that you need to understand is, uh, is that there's a whole context happening here that we may not understand because many of us probably don't come from Jewish backgrounds, but if you were the original audience, you need to know that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who used to be Jewish. In fact, they would have been ethnically Jewish, most commentators believe. So they would have had this whole grid work about the sacrificial system sort of running in the hard drive of their mind. And so when the speaker says, high priest, bing, 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 the alerts are going off, right? Because they're understanding something about the sacrificial system. What was it they understood? They understood all about the great high priest and what he did and who he was. You see, priests underneath the, under, the Old Testament system, the old sacrificial system, you can go read about this in the book of Leviticus and other parts of the first five books of the, of the Bible. But basically, a priest was a stand-in, a go-between. The priest would go between God's people and God himself and would represent the people's interest on behalf of God, I mean on behalf of the people before God, but he would also represent God's posture, God's heart. He would represent God's interest as it were also before the people. And on a very, very special day of the year called Yom Kippur, okay, you probably heard of this, it's on your calendars perhaps. That just means the day of atonement. That on one day out of the year, this great high priest was responsible for doing something what might catch our ears by like wild and crazy, okay? What would he do? 
The great high priest operated in the temple. And one day out of the year, the day of atonement, he would walk into the very special place of the temple called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. What would he do? Well, he would take the blood from an animal and he would walk in the middle of the very sanctuary itself and would apply the blood of the animal to the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark itself. And what did that symbolize? Well, you see, that Ark was the place where mercy met. In fact, it was called the mercy seat. It was a place where God dispensed his mercy. So here on this altar, the blood was shed, representing what? The sins of the people, the sins of the priest himself. And when offered up correctly, the priest would live and atonement would be made for his people. The thing that you need to understand is this, the high priest, the high priest had to be able to identify with those whom he represented. You see, otherwise this whole sacrificial system, it just fell apart. It absolutely fell apart. That's one of the key things that you understand because if you don't have true representation, then you don't have real atonement being able to happen. The point I want you to see is this, It's not so much that the old sacrifice system was actually atoning for sins. If you read further in the book of Hebrews, you'll know that the blood of bulls and goats can't do that. Only the blood of Christ can. But the system pointed towards something. It's showing us something. It's teaching us something about our need. And you saw it there in verse 16. That we may receive and find grace in our time of need. Why do we need someone to go before God on our behalf? And here's the answer, friends. It's because we've lost access. We've lost access to God. Let me see if I can draw this out for a moment. Do you remember the story, the story of the whole overall arching book of the Bible? At the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, man had fellowship with God. But then in Genesis chapter 3, Man turned his back on God and something happened. Do you remember? Mankind was cast out from the garden. They were cast out from the edges. And do you know what stood in between the garden and mankind, man and woman? It was a cherubim, angels. And the angels stood there with sword. And the picture is, is one of, you have been cast out and you cannot come back in. And thus it demonstrates and shows to us that we've lost access But the real question is, is why? Why have we lost lost access? Why have we lost this good presence of God as it were? Well, here it is. They They had lost the presence because they had turned their backs on God in sin. They believed and acted on the belief that life would be better off with them being in charge and in turn, we have done the same. I don't know about you, but here's what I mean. You know, just for a moment, honest assessment of the old heart here. I mean, how many of you operate, exist, and live, whether you are articulated or not, like you're at the center of the universe? Like, that's me. That's me. The world revolves around me. And that's the way I like to operate best. And And what this is telling us is that when we live like that, we've now dislodged, as it were, trying to usurp God's place at the very center of the universe. Well, here's what the writer from uh, Isaiah, he says. He says this, that by having turned our heart from him, that our sins have hidden his face. And I think that's the great image there, the idea of the face being hidden. 
that we no longer have access to the very thing that we so desperately need. We need to see his face again like we once had. Some will say, I think about this, and some will say, yeah, Ryan, but that's not a problem. With a little bit of kindness here, I can get that back. With a little bit of acceptance over here, maybe doing some religious efforts, right? Uh, Going to church, reading my Bible this way, staying away from bad things and partaking of good things that then and there I can finally get that access back. You know what? And here's the thing though, that God will never, ever, ever be satisfied by our own pulling up the old bootstraps. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Again, another kid illustration. Sorry, when you're kids, when you've got little kids, that's about all I can think of sometimes. But at one time at the table, I remember it was spaghetti night at our house. Uh, Young parents, y'all know what I'm talking about? Oh man, it's like a bomb goes off, isn't it? I mean, there's noodles on the ground, there's noodles on the plate, there's noodles in the hair, and and then the sauce. The sauce is, it's, it's unbelievable what happens with the sauce. And I'll never forget at one point, Evangeline, our, our, our child, she was old enough to operate a fork and to operate a napkin. And, you know, um, she knew that there was sauce on her face. And so she picked up the napkin, right? And begins to rub it all, oh, excuse me, rub it all over her face. And what happens? In her attempt to clean herself up, what happened? She just got messier. It ended up further across the field of her face, further in her hair. Here's what I want you to see. When we think that we can clean up our act by a little bit of good religious performance, by a little bit of kindness, it's actually as if we're smearing the sauce across our face before God. We're making things worse, why? Because to do so and to begin to plead that before God is to trust not in his work for us, but to trust in our own efforts to clean ourselves up. And that's why one theologian comes with a hammering comment when he says this. He says this. He says that it is not so much, it is not so much our sins that have brought us and separated us from God, but it is our damnable good works. Now just think about that. Think about that. It's the good things that often keep us from God. That's why we have a need. That's what he's getting at. And what the Bible is also telling us over and over again is that this sin reality in our life is is well. Now listen, I know that I'm coming heavy-handed on sin. I must be crazy to do that in downtown Nashville. But here's the thing. Many of us who would say, you know what, let's get away from this idea, this old notion of sin, Ryan. Come on, that's the problem with Christians. Y'all are so obsessed about it. If you would just get over it, things would be a lot better. And so the idea is let's remove from our conscience or our psyche the idea of sin altogether. And that might sound like a a doable solution for some, but I, I would submit to you of why that actually might be more problematic than you would first think. In the early 1970s, this is over 40 years ago, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Carl Menninger wrote a book. Psychiatrists wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin? And in this book, he wrote about his former efforts. He sort of went against all that he had researched throughout his lifetime. And he noted that the loss of the moral category of sin left his patients, his people, without the vocabulary and the concepts to name and to cope with the guilt that remains even after the category is gone. Think about that. 
He says this in his own words. When evil appears around us and no one is responsible and no one is guilty, then no moral questions are asked. And then there is, in short, nothing to do about it. So we sink into a despairing hopelessness. You see, I would suggest then that the ridding of sin's category only adds major insult to injury. And perhaps the great Saint Albus Dumbledore, y'all know who I'm talking about? That maybe Albus Dumbledore was right. Call him Voldemort, Harry. Always use the proper name for things. Fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. Or as the writer of Hebrews does in his kindness, he calls our condition sin. And in so doing, something amazing happens. He opens the door to hope. That's what he does. The point put simply is the fact that there even is a priesthood tells us that there is something deeply tragic about our condition. We've got a great need for something that we can't get by ourselves, access to God. So as you can see, the writer of Hebrews is showing us, he's showing us, though our grade is neat, our, great, our need is great, rather. He is showing us that we actually have something else, too. Not only do we have a great need for a high priest, he shows us as well that we actually have a great high priest for our need. And that is where this text just begins to flower and open up to us as we begin to see the mercies of God to us. Look with me at verse 15, underneath this heading of we have a great priest, high priest for our need. The writer notes something. He says this, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Instead, we have Jesus who is our great high priest. And you might ask the question, how? How is Jesus the great high priest? Well, verse 14 tells us that he passed through the heavens. And no doubt, this certainly refers to Jesus at this very moment, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, pleading our defense before us, for us. But it also shows us that Jesus has paid the penalty, that he has entered into the heavenlies upon payment of his very own life. In other words, he was faithful. He was faithful in his life and in his death. You see, on the cross, Jesus enters in to the true and real most holy place and gives his life, gives his blood for his people, those whom he truly represents. He identifies with us in our creatureliness, becoming fully human, and in our creaturely weakness as well. He goes behind the curtain. He goes behind the veil, taking on our sin and dies because of it. And do you know, know, dear friends, what the Bible tells us happens? In Matthew chapter 27, something happens that the curtain was torn from top to bottom and that we now have access, that veil that's separated, we now have access to come back to God. He goes under the sword for us and thereby restores access to us. Interestingly, on the very curtain itself stitched into the fabric of the curtain. Do you know what was on there? Cherubim. Palm trees. Picturing the access that we had lost and the way that it was kept out. And good King Jesus, when that veil is ripped, it's as if it's done away with and we now have access to our good God once again. Isn't that great news? That's staggering. That's staggering when you think about it. That we now have access 
to God. Well, what kind of priest does he tell us he is? Well, look, not only does this Christ represent us to God by being faithful, but he also shows us how he represents God back to us in his priestly ministry. Did you catch it there? He shows us his sympathy. Verse 15, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now that verb or that word there really is a picture of not merely intellectually grasping something. Not like, yeah, I understand it, I get it, that sort of thing. No, 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 no. The sympathizing that Jesus does is all the way down. It's almost as if it, it is to feel. It is, to, it, is, it is pathos with. It is, a, it is a feeling of how another one actually feels in a moment. And it implies this idea of active help. And here's what is so staggering. That Jesus does this for us in our weaknesses, not our strengths. Right? It's where we lack. It's where we don't measure up. In both body and in soul, Jesus is compassionate with us. Why? Because he came all the way down and was fully human for us. And he can only redeem what he becomes. But what he truly becomes, he really rescues. And that's great news. It's not just staggering that Jesus too experienced temptation, yet never gave in. He does so in every respect, we're told. Jesus was tempted. He knows what it's like. So he knows what it's like to respond with harsh words. Do you know what that temptation is like? Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to give our hearts over to a thousand different idols, to make much of our security and our wealth and our bank accounts, right? He knows that, and yet was without sin. He knows how it is. He meets you, brothers and sisters. He comes flying to your aid in the midst of your weakness and as it were, shoulders himself up under the burden itself. That is the great promise for you. He is able, as one writer wrote, to feel our weaknesses with us because he shared the situation in which we find ourselves. And in so doing, verse 16, he's able to give mercy and grace. Several years ago, I was crazy enough, I think that's why it's called this, but I was crazy enough to do the workout program called Insanity. Has anybody ever seen this? Yeah, it, I, I, I'm insane for having done it. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I know it might be shocking that I would actually work out the paragon of health up here, but here's the, here's the idea. I want you to see that uh, in that, in so doing that, of me going three minutes in every day and ready to vomit because it was so intense, I just remember thinking about my friend who recommended it to me, and me wanting to kill him for not telling me how hard and difficult it was going to be. And yet at the same time, do you know what else I found? Incredible comfort and courage to keep going. Because there was someone else who was going through exactly what I was going through. And just sort of having that, as it were, accountability partner, right? Somebody who was going through that same experience. This gave me courage to keep going. You know, all of us know what that's like, right? Somebody goes through something before you or with you and you say what? Man, they just get me. They understand me, right? So somebody is, is, is before you in taking the bar exam or some major test. Or somebody's walked a few steps down the road from you in parenting young children. Or you're now experiencing life as an empty nester. Or you're arcing into the years of retirement. To have people there with you speaking into that 
provides courage and confidence. And here is what Jesus is saying, that I am there with you. Me too. The great uh, teacher uh, from the University of Houston, Brene Brown, gave a now very famous TED Talk where she spoke about empathy and how it crushes shame. And I'll just quote her briefly. She says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And you know what? Jesus comes and he upends every single one of those. And listen to Brene Brown finish her quote. If you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. The two most powerful words when we are in struggle are me too. Me too. The writer of Hebrews is saying this, brothers and sisters, me too. That is staggering that the Lord of the universe would so shoulder identify with and be with us in the midst of our greatest sorrows, our greatest doubts, our greatest weaknesses. It's not just moral, it's body and soul. And there is not a footstep that you will walk in your life that Jesus himself has not walked before you in. And that is meant to be a profound comfort. And that is exactly what I want you to see. Instead of running away from God, instead of running him with the things that you're afraid to tell him, afraid to process with him, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. He is able, as we've saying, right? He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. So we come to him because he knows. He too has experienced it. And because he does, the text tells us to draw near that we might find grace. In reality, these weaknesses that we often keep, think keep us from God are the very thing that makes God's heart bend toward us, to meet us in our need. I'm sure you've heard this more than once around CPC, right? All you need is what? Nothing. That's all you need. All you need is need. That's what we sing about. And the idea is we bring that to Jesus so we take our failures, we take our sins. We take the totality of our weakness to Christ and he meets us there and tends to it with mercy and grace. Here's my point. Our great higher priest, Christ, has taken on our sin so we don't have to and makes atonement for it. His death seals access back to God's good presence. That which we lost, he is faithful. This is him doing the work for us. And yet, in the exact same time, he also, as our great high priest, now turns to us and dispenses mercy and dispenses grace to us in the moments of not when we have it all together, though he does. Not in the moments when we think we're just killing it in life, though he does dispense grace there, but in the midst of our temptations and in the midst of our weaknesses. Hallelujah that he does this for us. See, this is what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. And it's actually also what the reformers that we spoke about earlier at the beginning of the sermon were actually getting at too. That there is one way for man to be made right with God. It is through our great high priest. And that really is what came about and began to flourish and to begin to be recovered in the church. It was that Christ alone can do this. I'll leave you with one final quote. It's one of, my, from my, one of my favorite authors. It's a little bit longer, and I get excited reading it, so I'm just telling you beforehand, okay? Here it is. The Reformation was a time 
when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, and one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. That is grace. And that grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. I love that. Neither goodness nor badness, nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could ever be allowed to enter the case. With a nod to Robert Farrar Capone. Because Jesus is our great high priest, the cellars of God's grace and kindness have been opened up to us. That's the great privilege that we have now, brothers and sisters. Through his blood, we have access again, never to be lost. And one day, because he passed through the heavens, so will we. Where we have, forever and ever, the single thing we've been longing for our whole lives. Unmediated fellowship with God. Face to face at last. The great Baptist preacher Charles Sturgeon said this. I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for what you've done for us. That in your kindness, you have given yourself up as our great high priest. Now that we might have access again with the one who made us and knows us, and loves us. Thank you because of your work on the cross. You can be tender with us in our weaknesses. And we pray that you would give us the grace, O oh Lord, to continue to come to you, clinging to what we say to be true, our confession, and that we might receive mercy and grace today. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things that... Um, is so important about this table is that it shows us the very thing that we've just discussed. You see, here in this bread, here in this wine, we get to see a picture of our king being broken and given up for us. You see, this, this table is a picture of what the great high priest has done for us. He has come. And what has he done? He has given himself to us. And we symbolize that here by breaking bread. We get a picture of it by taking in his blood on our behalf. This is the great work of our priest for us. And so when you come to the table today, please know this. This table is a feast for sinners. It's a feast for people who don't get it to get right. And that's good news. But here's also the promise that this is a feast that's a celebration. Because in it, we are met with the one who knows us, loves us, made us, and gives himself for us. Now, I would just say to you, if you're someone who is still in process, someone who's still thinking about the truth claims of Christianity, I know I am, and I know Pastor Stacy would be here, and the leadership of the church are so thankful that you are here. Thank you for giving us your time this morning. But I would urge you not to take of these elements 
but rather to perhaps contemplate and to think about all that Jesus is saying that he does for you. This is a table for Christians, not just folks at InTown, but for all Christians everywhere. So please, please come and celebrate this together.